Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the professor of Old Testament here and president of this campus, and I'm joined today by Dr. Grace Sutanto, professor of systematic theology, Dr. Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament and our academic dean, and Ms. Jennifer Patterson, who's the director of our Institute of Theology and Public Life and a lecturer in public theology here on our campus. And we have a special treat today. We're going to be having a conversation with Dr. John Bolt. Welcome, John. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, a, it's really a delightful thing for me to do. It's a delight for us as well. John is well known in the area of systematic theology as a professor emeritus of systematic theology at Calvin Theological Seminary. John has been a churchman serving at a variety of Christian Reformed churches. He is a prolific author. Um, he's written on Kuiper's Public Theology. He's written a wonderful book on economics called Economic Shalom. He's written on the Christian story and the Christian school. But many of our listeners will know him best as the editor of the translation of Herman Bovink's Reformed Dogmatics. And so we have a lot to talk about this morning. But in order to lead that conversation, I want to hand it over to you, uh, Dr. Sutanto. Can you pick it up, Gray, and, uh, and start us off? Yeah, thanks so much for that, Scott. And it's so good to have John here. As I always say to everyone, we owe John, a debt of gratitude for bringing together the, the Bovink Reform Dogmatics and also the Reform Ethics to the English-speaking world. We really do thank you for that, John, and, and so good to have you here on the podcast. And in particular today, we want to talk about the publication of the second volume of the Reform Ethics that just came out, I think, the last couple of weeks, um, at least to when this podcast is going to come out. And of course, to a lot of the listeners they would have known that we've been talking about the Ten Commandments so far, and exactly this is the topic of the second volume of, of the Reformed Ethics here. I don't have it yet. I do have the English of the first volume of the Reformed Ethics, and I have the Dutch original here in front of me, but I cannot wait to have the English uh, second volume here. So we would love to ask you more about these sort of matters, John, but perhaps for our listeners who don't know yet about Bobbing's Reformed Ethics, Maybe give us a bit of an introduction of how we discovered Reformed Ethics and how you brought together this particular English edition to our hands. Okay, thank you. Yeah, the, the story is to me part of the incredible gift of God's providence. In 2008, which was the centenary of Bavink's Stone Lectures, The Philosophy of Revelation, a Calvin Seminary uh, hosted a conference at Calvin, and um, in preparation for that conference, Dirk van Keulen from the Netherlands was going to write um, a paper on Bavink's ethics, particularly the imitation of Christ. And he um, started scouring in the archives at the Free University and also the library at, in Kampen for work on Bavink's ethics. And he discovered a manuscript of about 1,100 pages 
uh, a manuscript that was in Bavinck's own hand. It was uh, handwritten, which were obviously Bavinck's own lecture notes. They had marginal comments. They had things scratched out and things written between the lines and so on. And so uh, at that conference, he revealed that, that he had found that. And uh, those of us who were there said, well, you know, we need to have this transcribed and we need to get this translated. And so we... Uh, Dirk arranged with a retired school teacher in the Netherlands to transcribe the manuscript. And uh, I started the job of translating it myself. Uh, I thought at first it was only about 600 pages or 550 pages or so. And I thought, well, okay, that's big, but you know, but it, it, the work was so slow that I realized I couldn't do possibly do it because part of what it required was editing. You know, these were lecture notes and, and Bavink would have shorthand bibliographic references. He would also have incomplete sentences and then he'd have two lines of a Latin of Latin from Thomas Aquinas or German from other people. And so it involved a lot of translation, a lot of bibliographic work. And I realized there was no way that one person was gonna get this done. So I was blessed to give a large gift. And I um, put together both a group of translators and an editorial team. Now, the editorial team uh, is named on the title page of each of the volumes because what we did is after the uh, after the work was pieces were translated, and I had gone through my first editorial pass through them as an editorial team starting in the summer of twenty. 15, we got together for two weeks and we went over it line by line. And so uh, the final product is really a, a team effort. Jessica Joustra, Antoine Theron, Nelson Klosterman, and Dirk Van Kulen and I uh, really did this together. And so the first volume came out a couple of years ago. The second volume just came out about a month ago. And the third volume is, we didn't get our editorial team together for 2020 or 2021, but um, Deo Volente, we will next summer and um, then it'll be another year at least before the third volume is out. But uh, that's the, it, it, it was an incredible providential gift to just discover it. And then to be able to get 
the group together that uh, translated it is also a real gift. Thanks so much for doing all that work. And what an amazing sort of Indiana Jones-like discovery this manuscript was, finding you know these handwritten pages. And, and to, to bring all of this into the English-speaking world is just a lot of work. So again, thank you so much for that. And now we're here to discuss the second volume in particular. What do you think in your own mind is the main contribution of the second volume? I know it's a lot about the Ten Commandments. And given okay. your own knowing of the Ten Commandments and the Reform tradition and so on, what do you think is Bobbing's own take here or situate his work here within the broader work of the Reform ethics in general? Okay. Um, the first and uh, the most important thing, and I do, I mentioned this in my uh, preface as well, is that uh, a lot of contemporary ethics in the broader evangelical world, but also in the Reformed world, is a little skittish about notions of duty and command. John Howard Yoder very famously said that, you know, the problem with Protestant ethics that focuses on the Ten Commandments is Jesus doesn't even figure into it. You know, you can learn what you need to know from natural law about how to live. And where, where does Jesus fit? Well, um, the answer to that is, of course, that there's a wonderful move from the first volume of the ethics to the second. In the first volume, Bavik does say that the heart of Christian ethics is union with an imitation of Christ. And then, as he unpacks that in the second one, second volume, the Ten Commandments are an expression of how we live out that union with Christ. So bring, keeping those two together in a way that I think honors both is I think the main contribution of the second volume. Can you explain how covenant theology plays a role in bridging some of the traditional camps through which ethics is approached and specifically getting at the notion of duty? What's the significance of his covenant theological approach? Okay. Oh, that is a great question. I, th I think that covenant is one of the key key realities that makes the link between the two possible. Uh, starting off, of course, very obviously with the fact that the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, as it is given in both Exodus and Deuteronomy, begins with the covenantal expression of God's redemptive work with Israel. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, it's the covenantal God who is the one who issues the Ten Commandments. But I think going back even further, to me, that only underscores an important element of Reformed thinking about covenant that goes back to the Reformation time, actually, John Fesco has shown that the idea goes back to the patristics, but 
And that is the, the notion of the covenant of works. That is to say, the original condition, the original related situation of the first created human beings was covenantal. So covenant and the idea that we are created for obedience is I think the, the key link between them because what Christ does of course is to fulfill the law in his act of obedience and through his spirit equip us to actually be obedient. I think the notion of obedience to God has been far too easily set aside by a lot of uh, modern Christian ethicists who I, I, I don't have any quarrel with wanting to emphasize the importance fundamentally for Christian moral living in our union with Christ. That's obviously has to be underscored. But that's not, it seems to me, at odds with or in conflict with the notion of obedience. Our duty... Uh, one of the lines in uh, the second volume is that our, our duty is not just to the law as such, but it's really a duty toward God. Um, it's God who asks of us obedience. That's, and in addition, of course, to that, obedience to God is the key to our human flourishing. I mean, it, it's not that it is at odds with our nature, it is consistent with our nature and our being created in the image of God. So covenant, it's a great question, Jennifer, because covenant, I think, is the key to linking those two. John, we've been spending a lot of time in our podcast discussing the Westminster Larger Catechism, especially in its teachings on the Ten Commandments. What in your idea, in your own reading of Bavink here, and also the Reformed tradition, is Bavink's own kind of distinctive contributions on the substance of the Ten Commandments themselves, especially given your knowledge of Reform ethics in the 17th century and also the, the Westminster Standards in particular, or maybe even the Dutch Three Forms and, and the, the Dutch confessional tradition? Well, one of the things, and I don't know if this is so distinctive, but it's definitely important. Bavink is very aware of the problem within the Reformed tradition of moralism and legalism. And so um, his, his discussions of ethical matters are very careful and nuanced. I mean, even in the sort of amusing areas, um, one of the things that is striking is in the section on duties that we have to ourselves, he deals with food and drink, but also with clothing. And he gets into discussion about fashion 
And he acknowledges that, uh, for example, on the question of proper vestments and clothing and attire for clergy, including uh, head coverings, some of this is relative to cultural context and situations. And he, he, he doesn't, he's very careful to point out that this, there's no kind of an absoluteness about this. And he gets into a really interesting discussion that I didn't know of beforehand. In the uh, 17th century Netherlands, there was an enormous pamphlet war about the length of hair for men. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the story of Absalom figures into this. It was very polemical and wild. Bavink treats all that, uh, he treats it, first of all, respectfully. I mean, you know, he, he doesn't just do the thing that I find so many of my own contemporaries who grew up in the 60s doing. They, they, they get into discussions about what their parents expected them to do or not to do on the Lord's Day. And they start sneering and mocking. And, and it, it always bothers me. I mean, I, I don't want to be a legalist about Sabbath observance and all that. But I think even when you don't agree anymore, treat the desire and the intention with some respect. And Bavink does that. So I don't know if that's unique to him, but it is a characteristic that he's fair, respectful, and, and aware of the dangers of moralism, which I think a lot of contemporaries are as well, but they don't necessarily do it with respect. You've just mentioned the duties to ourselves, and the structure of this volume deals with duties to God, duties to ourselves, duties to our neighbor. And on uh, this question interlaces with another, which is given that it is an unfinished and unpublished work, there's obviously enormous scholarly interest in the publication, uh, and, and this will feed uh, scholarship for years to come. And so I'm, I'm intrigued as we go through this conversation about your insights as to how it should be used for outside of strictly scholarly purposes. How should it be used for informing the Christian life, life in the church, and so on? And one, one impression that could come looking at this volume standalone is that duties to ourselves it takes up quite a bit of the text. Uh, duties to our neighbors is is thinner. Can you it put is. that in context of the whole work? Uh, tell, how should a reader who is approaching just this volume uh, be informed about uh, that observation? Okay, that is a really great point because you're right. There's a sense in which the sixth commandment uh, gets more attention than uh, the seventh through the tenth, uh, which uh, gets kind of summarized in a single chapter, the last chapter. I think the way to properly contextualize this, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked it because it, it makes me aware of something I need to add to the preface of the third volume. 
Uh, the third volume intended to, you know, he he completed the section on marriage and a single segment on divorce. So marriage is, is, is covered. Then there is one on society, a chapter that he had outlined for society, then one on the state, then one on uh, the church, uh, one on art and scholarship, education, and then one on um, the church, and then the final one is on the kingdom of God. Now, those are not specifically duties to neighbor as outlined necessarily in the um, Ten Commandments, although the one on marriage is clearly has to do with the Seventh Commandment. And, and the Eighth Commandment, you know, the, the, the commandments, stealing and so forth, are, are covered. Uh, because one of the things that I'm going to, that I've done in the society chapter is to look at his uh, address to the Christian Social Congress and the things that he says about property, about labor, and so on. Um, so part of the answer to your question is that he deals with the import, important dimensions of neighbor love in full chapters, or he intended to, on what you know we loosely call social ethics. So that's that's but you know, you're right that um, it's a little thin for contemporary purposes. Now, that which raises the question, how should this be used? I think one of the questions that has come up a number of, or issues that has come up a number of times in conferences, particularly from our Dutch colleagues, who are a little nervous that those of us in North America, but especially maybe among younger scholars uh, that come from outside of the Euro-American world, that it's going to be viewed and used more normatively than in their humble opinions it ought to be. In other words, that it's going to be used as a textbook of theology that gives the, all the right answers. Now, you know, I don't get so nervous about that. That's because I'm a much more conservative kind of person than they are. But I, I do think it's something that we have to keep in mind. See, because for me, the, key, the, the right way to use this, both volumes so far, but also the third volume, is to think methodologically, to ask the questions, how does Bavink approach the, ver the commandments? How does he approach questions of conscience? How does he approach questions of duty and the like? Then I think methodologically, what Bavink has done stands up. I think it, I think it, it will stand up, frankly, perennially. I think that's what makes 
both the dogmatics and this ethics, a kind of a classic, because I think the key to a good text that is a classic and a perennial of perennial use is that it keys us methodologically. It, it shows us how we ought to think theologically, how we ought to approach things theologically, not in order to get exactly the same answers that Bavink does, although remarkably many of our answers I think will be the same, but, but rather to ask, how does he get at that? Well, just to use the dogmatics as an example, Bavink takes into his account, first of all, the scriptural testimony, but then also the reception of scriptural testimony. In other words, how has the church of all ages understood a particular question? But then Bavink also takes into account broader religious experience, Christian, particular Christian experience, and all of that taken together leads him to certain conclusions. And I think methodologically, I think that that's correct. In the ethics, well, same basic method, but then maybe in particular, trying to get at what is it that we as human beings wrestle with when we wonder about, when we reflect about, when we ponder moral questions and moral dilemmas. What is it? What is the good that we want to do? What makes even knowing the good difficult? I mean, those methodological issues, I think, are the ones that should inspire us. And that will be particularly, of course, for scholars, but I think even general readers should be guided by people who do that to thinking this through also for themselves. I, I, want, I want this, the legacy of both the dogmatics and the ethics to be that it has inspired new generations of people to do dogmatic and moral theology. John, as you're talking about one of the important sort of frameworks that Bob Inc. uses when he's dealing with those questions of what should we want for the world and how should we be in the world, you talk about how he has he returns to this Trinitarian formulation when he thinks about the Christian faith. And this brings together, you know, those who might focus merely on Christ and his kingdom and, and not focus on the whole of the Trinity. This kind of draws together the whole teaching of scripture in regards to how we ought to live under these Trinitarian terms. You, you cite in your preface, uh, Bobbing's excellent quote, and I want to read it. This is from Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 1, and he says, the essence of the Christian religion consists in the reality that the creation of the Father, ruined by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated 
by the grace of the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. And I love that formulation there. And I, and I want to ask you, how does that, how does this Trinitarian framework draw our ethical discussions, our ethical formulations? Um, you know, how does it keep them fully orbed? You know, how does it keep the whole of the Godhead uh, uh, in mind? You know, how does this, how does this change the way that we do ethics? Well, um, okay. I, in a number of ways, I think um, it does mean, uh, first of all, basically positive attitude on the part of Christian ethicists to natural law, that um, there is an orderedness to our moral world given by God in creation. So that, I, I think a positive evaluation of natural law and using natural law in, especially in our, what I would call our public arguments. But second, and, and that was really, I think, the value of what Bavink does in the first volume. He looks at humanity from its ideal creation situation to its fallen one, and then to converted and redeemed. In other words, there has to be a kind of Christian realism in ethics. I think we need to set forth ideals. We need to set forth the ideal way that we as human beings live together in society and so on. But there has to also be the recognition that even redeemed people have not yet arrived at the consummation. So the, the fact that there is a fallen and redeemed, this duality to Christian existence, I think means, I, I'm not, sure yet in every aspect of life how that comes into play but i think being aware of the parameters is crucial but then also it means taking seriously the reality that the holy spirit does make changes in people you know i for the last uh, two weeks, for the season of Advent, uh, our church, we are right now without a, our pastor, he took a call this summer. And uh, so we've had guest ministers and we have as a guest preacher for Advent, the pastor of the prison church in Ionia prison here in Michigan. One of the most remarkable stories to me in the last two decades has been the way in which the gospel has come to American prisons. The work of Chuck Colson obviously comes to mind, but also institutionally beginning with 
Angola prison in Louisiana, which became, thanks to the New Orleans Baptist Seminary beginning a satellite in that prison, changed from the worst, most violent prison in America to a really transformed place. And that model of teaching in prisons, creating churches in prisons, where those who are graduates of the seminary education received become pastors of small churches in prisons elsewhere. That model, hey, the gospel has changed. So I think ethics in a realistic way, also takes into account that, you know what? <laughs> I, I, I've, I've told my friends who are involved in this ministry that I want to hear more and more of their stories because I need the reminder all the time. You know what? The gospel is, it does really change. It changes people who are in life sentences in prisons and makes them evangelists for Jesus. Now, can you imagine a more great transformation? I think that today, too much ethics has unrealistic expectations of bringing the kingdom of God to earth and making social change while not maybe adequately taking into account where the gospel has really made changes. So now that's I, as, as practical as I can get about really taking seriously this full Trinitarian mm. vision of Christian ethics. Well, taking it in the direction of sort of general revelation, you, you commented earlier, and this is in our conversation prior to recording, but I'd love to come back to it, that, that Bob Inc. was interested in statistics, and he was interested in the real, you know, I guess, a kind of Christian realism in the sense of the real experience of people in the world, particularly like you talked about alcoholism, right? Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that is an interesting insight into Bob Inc.'s methodology. Well, um, you know, one of the differences between the first and the second edition of the dogmatics is a very, very important section in volume three. It's 427. Where what Bavink does there is he picks up a thing that he had already said, that he had also said in his philosophy of revelation, namely that it was important for theology, especially as it dealt with the order of salvation, to take into account modern psychology and to take that into account much more seriously. So in section 427b, what he does there is he gets into an extensive conversation with American psychology and includes in there tying and raising questions about the relationship between 
the development of faith in adolescence and their psychosexual development. Now, that, that's, that's intriguing. That is to say, what Bobbing is doing there, and I think it's reflected in other places in the second edition of the Dogmatics where he takes world religions into account much more seriously, is that Bobbing is saying, you know, Christian theology can't be fideistic or biblicistic. What it has to do, I mean, the Bible is always scripture, Holy Scripture is always the foundation and the measuring point, the standard for claims that we make about God, always. That doesn't change. But in order to fill that in, in order to get the fullest understanding of who God is in his revelation, we also have to take into account the way that people outside the Christian faith experience God. And we have to take into account the human experience of life, of sin, of the brokenness. And so in the Reformed ethics, it's fascinating to me that we see Bavink exploring statistics, statistics about alcoholism, for example. And, and he even goes into a little bit of a scientific discussion about the character of alcohol and how it affects human physiology. In other words, I think what we see in even the unfinished manuscript and the unpublished manuscript, plenty of evidence of the kinds of things that Bavink wanted to include in a broader, let's say, philosophical kinds of ethics, not just an ethics based on scriptural revelation. So um, I agree that it's unfinished and that Bavink probably wanted to do more, but I also really think it's important to note that some of the traces of what the, of the kinds of things that he would want to do are definitely present. And um, to add to that, the third volume, which I really hope and pray that our editorial team can get at this summer or next summer, has five unfinished chapters. In the first one on society, Bavink left an outline. On the others, he left a few bibliographic notes and a few ideas, but that's it. One of those chapters is on the church. And as I sort of ruminated a bit the last month or so about what to include in that chapter, because what we're doing in those five chapters is uh, piecing together uh, passages from Bavink's uh, writings that we do have, and, and, and I'm putting it into a kind of a, a narrative so that we get uh, you know, a readable chapter out of it. I thought that we might do something that isn't covered in the dogmatics section in ecclesiology. I mean, he has everything there. The church's institute, organism, 
the biblical uh, foundations for thinking about the church and so on, I thought Bavink also did some writing on evangelism and evangelization. And um, there are eight propositions that he presented to a conference. There's a brief summary of his remarks to an other conference. And then there are, is also um, a manuscript that appeared in a, in a series um, on, in the, one of the Dutch journals on evangelization. And as I read that chapter or that, that lecture, that article, it struck me, he, he gets into the need for a re-evangelization of the quote-unquote Christian nations. In other words, he's got a sense of the missiological realities of the impact of modernity on the Christian nations. And uh, in that one too, he includes detailed statistics about things like alcoholism and prostitution as indicators of the breakdown of society. And, uh, you know, he has a very comprehensive understanding of evangelization. It's supposed to start the gospel also then reaches out and changes the society in which we live. And so, um, all of this is to say the indications or the signals, if you will, of the kinds of things that he wanted to do are very much present in, both in the manuscript and also in some of the auxiliary material that uh, we're going to be adding to uh, the third volume. But you remember, you, you got to remember, he, he, uh, these were lectures given to students at the Kampen Theological School of the Christlichkeit von Mirakirk. And so these are not students who are cosmopolitan, um, worldwide, uh, up part of the upper elites of Dutch society, but he, he wants them to be aware that of the temptations and dangers and brokenness, but also point to concrete examples in which Christians have engaged in amelioration efforts. That's really insightful, John. And as we're thinking about, you know, what you just said there about the sort of distinctive shape of Bavink's ethics and how it could inspire reform ethics today, I keep thinking about how neo-Calvinism really does try to straddle a third way between particular polarities, right? With Bavink's doctrine of common grace, we can talk about natural law, but not a kind of naked access to natural law. Right. And with Bavink's understanding of grace restores nature, the kind of gospel changes that he talked about is not a kind of transformation to a sort of otherworldly new metaphysical social order, but it's precisely so that grace might restore us to our created intended design, right? That we're supposed to function in exactly that sort of way. And in Bavink's understanding of 
um, how to use these sort of statistics of alcoholism and, and whatever else that he was codifying for his ethics. He's really taking seriously that we can learn from the newer sciences and the newer studies that are being done today. We can't just ignore that stuff and sort of retreat into a sort of biblicistic mindset. So I think that's one of the, the marks that that really does shape the whole of the reform ethics here. And maybe to round off our discussion, how would you now give us a preview of the third volume of the reform ethics? So if I think about the first volume of the reform ethics, I think about his sort of created, fallen, redeemed schema of telling us about human nature. And then now we have the Ten Commandments, the duties uh, toward God, towards ourselves, towards our neighbor. How does this anticipate what he's going to discuss in the third volume? And when that's coming, you're going to have an editorial team, summer 2022, Lord willing. What would that look like? I, I'm trying to think of a metaphor. It doesn't come to me right now. But it what it is really, it is kind of broader social application of what's in the first two. Uh, in other words, okay, what does it mean that we take seriously our created nature, our fallenness, and our redemption, filtering that through the lens of the obedience that God expects of us, how do we then live in community in the world, um, in marriage, you know, society, and so forth? In other words, it's a kind of reaching out beyond just the um, community of believers wanting to be obedient to actually living in the world. One of the, you know, we've got um, a couple of additional things in that third volume. One is a translation of Bavink's philosophical ethics on the, the historical part of it. The Dutch volume edited by Dirk van Keulen, uh, has was just published, and, and we're going to translate a section of the first part, which is the history of modern ethics. And, and Bavink's take on the way in which the modern philosophical ethics after Immanuel Kant and Descartes, uh, how that all worked its way out. We're also including a translation of a lecture that Bavink gave in a number of different places on contemporary morality. In 1902, 1903, the winter, he gave this in a number of different places and it was translated. It was published in Dutch as Hedendagse Morale, Contemporary Morality. And um, that's, we're going to, tra we've translated that and that will be included as well. So it's a orientation to the broader world, and the broader world, especially in the modern era. Well, Dr. Bolt, we look forward to that work uh, as it becomes available to the public. I think we're looking at the timeline you talked about earlier, looking at around 
2024, sometime in there, but we'll be waiting with bated breath as these uh, as these volumes continue to come out. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this conversation, a far ranging one, which we shouldn't be surprised by, given the given the the far ranging nature of uh, Herman Bovings. Uh, work, but thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. Well, you know, thank you so much for having me. And um, to me, this, this conversation this morning is reflective of the thing that really gives me the most pleasure about all those years and, and work that I and others have put in. And that is a younger generation of really good, bright, students continuing to think about the things that Bavink thought about, being inspired by him, but not being, you know, in a sort of narrow way, limited to him. I mean, the Lubach and Bavink. I, I, you know, I can't begin to tell you how delighted I am in those kinds of projects, because that's exactly, I think, the way that Bavink should be used. So thank you very much for this opportunity. And it's been wonderful to meet those of you who I had not met before. Thanks for joining us for this conversation, everyone. We look forward to being again with you next week. Don't forget, if you're interested in conversations like this one, to check out RTS at rts.edu forward slash Washington. You can also go to the show notes here for this episode, and you can see a place where you can ask questions of the faculty that we will answer in later episodes. But we look forward to being with you again the next time. Until then, take care. Hello, John. Good morning. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Good to see you. I'm sitting here with uh, one of your major works. <laughs> oh, well, that's, you know, it's interesting that of the four volumes, there are very few people who say, oh, the prolegomena is my favorite. One of them was a dear colleague, uh, Dr. Eugene Osterhaven, who taught at Western Theological Seminary for many years. He's now with the Lord. But uh, he was one of the few who also, I, I too, I mean, they're, they're all wonderful. But I, I have a special kind of love really? of prolegomena questions. And uh, he's one of the few who really shared that. What is it? What is it about? Which questions are the ones that stand out to you, or that that, that draw you to that discussion? Prolegomena. Yeah. Is it the epistemology, well, or is it? Yeah. yeah. Um, the question really is simply the way that we talk about God. And where does that come from? Uh, why is there a kind of universal 
love of, uh, you know, interest in the question of God. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, Punnenberg uh, somewhere says that you don't really, when you say the word God, everybody has a, at least some sense of what it is that you're talking about. Yep. Uh, there's, it's transcendent, it's uh, powerful, and it's important. You know, in other words, and, and now the question is, why is that? And uh, exploring the questions of what it is in human nature itself, you know, Calvin's famous mm -hmm. discussions about the seed of religion being in every human person. So there's something about those are the kinds of questions that intrigue me. The mm -hmm. language about God, what we can say about God, and uh, why we say it. What it is that connects us with other human beings. Mm -hmm. The moment that we get into the question of God. I mean, those are the sort of underlying epistemological. But then there's also, of course, metaphysics. Um, one of the things that Bavink, the, the one modern thinker that Bavink was constantly uh, fighting against is Immanuel Kant. Mm -hmm. um, we have, says Bavink, we have knowledge of God. Kant says, well, we, we can have knowledge of human experience. We can have knowledge of human feelings. Uh, but, you know, God is super sensible, so we can't know him. And Bavink fought against that kind of dualism from the beginning to the end of his theological career. And uh, for me, there are time, times when I think... Um, in the tradition of Dutch Reformed theology that followed Bavink, there was a, also some apprehension about the metaphysical questions that Bavink raised. Mm -hmm. um, Berkauer, G.C. Berkauer is a good example of that. Yeah. Uh, he, he wants to talk about the correlation between faith and revelation. Well, he never wrote, interestingly enough, a monograph on the doctrine of God or on prolegomena for that matter. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, those are the... I love prolegomena questions. I love them. Yeah, so do I. I, th th I think it's fascinating. And particularly those questions of epistemology and knowing and so, and there is a kind of innateness, you know, to knowing and, and acknowledging God. I I used to begin my prolegomena class by asking students if they had ever had an experience of God, and then to if they were willing to share it, um, do a little bit of kind of cataloging and type typing of what kinds of things they judged as experiences of God. And then looking at them together and asking the question, what do all these various things have in common? So 
in the exercise, and I, I just passed that on to you who are teachers, because I think that's a great way to relate the issue of them as potential pastors wanting to communicate to other people about God. You know, I, I'm struck by this so much that uh, we often use completely interfamily terminology to talk about God. I mean, I have this with the question of the Holy Spirit, for example. We sang the doxology in church. And I've asked students, now, you bring someone who is honestly, say, illiterate about the Christian faith, and you sing the doxology, what would such a person make out of praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Who's the Who's this Holy Ghost? In other words, you have to begin with language. You have to begin with how does a particular way of talking about God communicate to someone who doesn't share your own beginning? Um, I think that that's challenging i think it and i think it's necessary mm -hmm. um you you've got to get i mean it's been always one of my goals as a teacher especially for mdiv students to get them to ask the question okay i believe this how do i now even talk about it to someone who doesn't share my faith how do I explain? There's some things easy. God as Father works fairly well. Holy Ghost, not so much. But you've got, it's the, the method. It's the process. It's the learning to think theologically. And I would then add, think theologically and apologetically. That is to say, how do you, or missionally or evangelistically, it's the same thing. How do you communicate it? And the ground of that conversation, the ground of that methodology would need to be image of God, right? Bob, because it's ex yes. extensive doctrine of the image of God, correct? And would it be common grace? Is that how, how would you articulate that? I mean, nat I mean, natural law, but with, underneath natural law, where would we find that? Where is that? Where is that continuity? Yeah, well, you know, com, common createdness in the image of God. You know, don't don't the rest of you find that so often in our public discourse too? We get caught up into tribalistic identities. The idea that only you know, a left-handed Filipino lesbian can understand me because I am a left-handed Filipino lesbian. I mean, I'm just, you know. And and I want to, I guess, it, it seems to me important for Christian ethicists and preachers to undercut that narrative. That is say, you know what? 
when it comes down to it. There's only really one important identity that we have, and that is the common identity we have as human beings, which we as Christians understand as being in the image of God, but still, at a, at a basic human level, we are human together. And, and therefore, we do have much more in common than the world in which we live acknowledges, broken up as it is into all kinds of tribalisms. And I do think, um, Scott, I think your instincts are right. I think Christian ethics in its, um, in its own work, but especially in its outreach and communication has to begin with anthropology. It has to begin with our understanding of the human person. Uh, the human person uh, who is intrinsically valuable because created by God, but also a responsible moral agent because created in the image of God. Now, obviously, there are individual persons who, for whatever reason, could be mental illness or could be other things, um, have a diminished responsible agency and require care and all and so forth. But to insist upon the responsible moral agency of every human being, and at the same time to insist that all, moral, all human beings have intrinsic dignity and value and worth, that, that, that seems to me sort of the two pillars with which Christian ethics goes out into the world. Well, it's interesting because it, it, it shows up, I mean, in my field, biblical theology, so now moving away from kind of general epistemology, but just maybe epistemology and interpretation, there is this, of course, there's the argument that we have no continuity with the authors of scripture. That's a totally different world, totally different place. There's no continuity between us. And yet my field, which is historical linguistics and, and philology, I guess, it's there are interesting things you can point out, not uh, it's just even at the, at the level of language of this shared human experience that is the articulation of language, how language works, that I can read an ancient Israelite text, and you might say Hebrew is so different from English, but it's actually not that different. That's kind of the thing that's sort of surprising. We so often focus on the differences and how strange, uh, how, how, you know, how, how one context can't possibly understand another context. But actually, if you sit down and look at the continuity, even the transitivity of verbs and that kind of thing, why do we have so much shared experience? Or then you go beyond uh, linguistics to things like the story of Abraham needing to sacrifice Isaac. Nowhere does the author feel like he needs to describe why it would be sad for a father to have to kill a son, right? The, the, yeah. the, the ancient audience didn't need that explanation, and we don't either, because there's this shared experience. Now, I know that's not talking about Christian versus non-Christian, but I think it's it's working with kind of a similar element there that there is this shared human experience, even in you know incredibly disparate cultures and contexts that can't be ignored to the point that even atheists like 
you know, Steven Pinker or Noam Chomsky will point out that there's this universalist experience, universalistic experience of language that all humans have. And yet they're not really quite sure how to articulate why that is. It must be for evolutionary reasons or something, but it's uh, you know, you can't get away from that kind of shared experience. Now I know Bobbing's talking about much more than that, but that that's where it kind of has an implication in my field. That, that's wonderful, Scott. I, I'm, you know, language fascinates me and, and particularly the uh, and and Bavink, this is does relate to Bavink, especially his philosophy of revelation lectures the the development of self-consciousness you know i i used to tell my students that uh, one of the absolute blessings of having a granddaughter having grandchildren was relearning at a time when you're not as busy raising your own children and actually seeing the development. My little granddaughter, she was less than a year old. Uh, my wife was holding her up to big mirror we have in our bathrooms. Fascinating always to take uh, small children and let them look into the mirror. And, you know, they look at the mirror. Well, she got to an age where all of a sudden she was looking in the mirror and then she whips her little head around backwards to see who's behind her, who that was in the mirror. <laughs> and then over time, as she identifies herself in that mirror, I mean, that, that's, and then begins to formulate words about who that is. Um, this is, to me, this is one of the most mysterious and wonderful aspects of being a human. And guess what? Biblical revelation begins with God talking yeah. and speaking things into existence and then having conversations with the creature he made who can talk back to him. Mm -hmm. in the double sense of the word. I mean, <laughs> that's right. all, that to me is, and, you know, I, I sort of feel that if, if people aren't fascinated by that, if they don't think there's mystery and wonder and awe in that, mm -hmm. well, then they are the kind of people that Max Weber called religios un musicalish. You know, they're religiously unmusical. They just don't have a... <laughs> and there's no... Yeah, there's no partial languages. There's no uh, There's no other human, you know, species that have like a partial language. I don't care what... You know, there's, there's... I don't care what you say about the gorilla who's hitting the button that says he wants more ice cream. That's not language. That's a different thing. You know, there's yeah. language and there's not language. And... This is a thing, not that this is this is the image of God, but it does get at that shared experience yeah. that you're talking because, about. Because language is metaphysically primordial because God himself speaks. Yeah. And so as we're made in the image of God, and this is why I'm, I'm, a, I'm a realist with respect to propositions, that <laughs> despite the different languages that we speak, there's still continuity across those different languages. And that's why translation is possible, because propositions are not identifiable with the languages we speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Gray, you made my day. I, you know, anytime 
I have a conversation with someone who will affirm the metaphysical basicality of propositions. I, you know, raise my thumb. I, I'm, a, you, I'm you know, as you know, someone who affirms the importance of metaphysics. Yeah, you have to. I have a whole spiel on uh, propositional realism in my apologetics class as a feature of our transcendent universe. Because if not, you know, communication becomes impossible. And I think there's no way a naturalistic framework could account for that. No. Yeah. So no, I, that's right. Yeah, mm. you have to. Well, I'm glad I made your day, John. You made ours by being in our little podcast oh. here. <laughs> <laughs>